Influence, the global podcast that shines a spotlight on the influencer marketing industry. Welcome to Influence, the global podcast that shines a spotlight on the influencer marketing industry. I'm Gordon Glenister, and in this edition, we'll be looking at how influencer marketing is shaping up the other side of the pond. I'll be speaking to the CEOs of influencer platforms Silo and Tagger Media, both of which are BCMA members, and also top LinkedIn voice Goldie Chan. But before we start, I just wanted to tell you about a new series of interviews that are available now on the BCMA website. It's called Life of an Influencer. So you're going to hear from Fab Giovanetti, CEO of the Health Bloggers Community, Rob Eads from the Lean Student Chef, lifestyle and fashion blogger Anthea Biggs, mummy blogger Louise Simpson, aka Three Little Tinkers, James Bamsey, and The Travel Project. So do check them out on thebcma.info. So to start with, let's welcome my first guest all the way from Los Angeles, top LinkedIn voice, Goldie Chan. I started by asking her how she got that accolade. I got it because of my video content. Now, video is very new on the LinkedIn platform. So it's only roughly about two years old. And I started creating video content in the LinkedIn video beta. um, And then I guess you could say I quickly rose in prominence in the video scene. And they call me the Oprah of LinkedIn. So that's my moniker. And And so I got LinkedIn Top Voice because I speak often on branding and marketing and entrepreneurship. And so I was just in on your side of the pond covering female entrepreneurship with London and Partners, who's a great organization. So when did you start with all this then? So I've been working in digital marketing for about a decade. And after that decade, I suppose, uh, I just had left a head of marketing position at a social analytics startup. And I was taking a month sabbatical. And during that month sabbatical, I got into LinkedIn video beta. So Really, my journey is less than two years old in the influencer slash top voice uh, field because I had never really done any influencer marketing before or, quite frankly, done public speaking prior to that. Um, But it's been so it's been a very quick rise for me (laughs) um, and very interesting time. So what have been some of your highlights then? What have you noticed that uh, particularly in the uh, LinkedIn community that's different perhaps about Instagram? Well, one of the things I feel very good about is when I started doing video content on LinkedIn, I started building a creative community on LinkedIn. So it's very important to me to have LinkedIn be a place to nurture other people and to encourage them to also create content. Um, And so that's how the community is a little bit different is the creative community is also very, very new, um, very nascent on LinkedIn, as opposed to being a lot more mature and developed on platforms like Instagram or YouTube. The community is just years and years and years older. So on LinkedIn, everything is is relatively new, which is why I tell new creators there's still so much space for you to join in and find your voice on the platform. So I'm, I'm guessing you're quite an inspiration to a lot of young young females that are, want want to follow you, and particularly in in, in LinkedIn. Well, I definitely know I, I mentor quite a few people, and I'm always trying to help others. Uh, there's 
once again, there's so much room to become a new creator on this particular platform. But also I find it, I find it really fun that this is a time in which new creators can jump on and they can change the tone of an entire platform. Mm. So that is not something that you can readily do on Instagram or on more mature platforms right now. But on LinkedIn, there's still a chance to do that. And so if there's a chance, why not? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, what's, what are some of the campaigns that you've seen that have worked particularly well on LinkedIn that perhaps might not resonate so well on, on others? Well, I like to say that in some ways, especially video content, which is very new, it's a little bit in some ways like young YouTube. So you're getting a lot of people who are doing vlogs and you're getting a lot of people who are doing content that's not as polished, but that content is still doing well in mm. a way that it may or may not do well on other platforms that expect content to be very polished like YouTube, right? Um, and so you're getting a space to be able to create content that's not necessarily as polished, but also a space to create, and this is really exciting, B2B content. Because there's no other platform on the internet, this is what I'm laying my cards down on, that is this strong in the B2B universe besides LinkedIn. And that is so, so exciting to be able Mm. to create create video content and create new kinds of content on a platform that really is the only platform out there for this one section of work of industry. So what sort of campaigns, though? I mean, are we, are we talking about thought leadership stuff? Are we talking about um, what sort of brands have you found that have, that have done well? So there's, of course, thought leadership. Um, I, whenever I'm working with brands, I like to talk a lot about both two things, thought leadership and brand awareness, because the platform is still a little new for conversion unless you're putting money behind it. So if you're putting money behind, of course, if you throw money at anything, you could probably make magic happen no matter what. Mm. (laughs) But if you're talking about organic growth, which is what I focus on, then you need to talk about just two things, which is thought leadership and brand awareness, really getting the brand name out there and then creating thought leadership under that brand name. So these twofold ideas. Mm. And one of the brands that I've been working with that's wonderful, also very global, is Adobe. Oh, right. right. Yeah. And they're really thinking about how they can be a thought leader. And they, of course, have so many products, um, but how they can be thought leaders in various products that they manage. And then also, how can they increase brand awareness of that product mm. in that space? Other brands are trying to understand. I know that BuzzFeed spent quite a bit of effort trying to also get in the space in an interesting way. Um, and then there's there's brands that you wouldn't think of, but have consistently actually done decently on LinkedIn. And one of them is Sephora, which is a makeup brand here in the States. Um, I'm not sure if Sephora has branches in the UK. I always forget. I think they might. Um, But they are a makeup brand. So you assume this B2C consumer brand, why would they want a presence on LinkedIn? And And would that come across well? And they do it in a way where they're not focused on the B2C product, right? They're not focused on selling the makeup, but they're focused on brand awareness, selling Mm. the story. For example, if I was attempting to target teenage girls, right, I wouldn't go onto LinkedIn and create content. I would go onto a platform like TikTok Mm. and use that to target that particular demographic because that's where they live. Mm. Now, if I'm targeting B2B marketers, 
in the US, I would go on to LinkedIn because that is a platform on which that particular demographic very strongly lives on. So it's very important to understand who it is that you want to reach and for what reason. Mm. So of course, we can never forget that Facebook targeted ads are still the best and strongest ads out there. But if you're targeting B2B marketers, is still better to spend quite a bit more money and do that on LinkedIn. Influence, the global podcast that shines a spotlight on the influencer marketing industry. One of the top influencer marketing platforms in the US is Tagger Media. I spoke on the line with the CEO, Dave Dickman, about his take on the industry. So Tagger is awesome, but I'm a little biased. We've been in the business about uh, four and a half years, and we're, we're based here in Los Angeles, uh, and we have offices in uh, London and New York. Uh, our development team's in Poland, so we have a, a pretty good global footprint. We also have a reseller network that's really fantastic that's based in uh, Toronto and Singapore and Brazil. So we have a, you know, this business, as you well know, is global by default, so mm. we have a, a really interesting footprint. Um, and Tegra is... I mean, simply put, we're a, we're a tool. We're a sophisticated but easy-to-use tool, uh, a SaaS model, yeah. services a software. Um, so we don't do the managed service side of the house. Uh, we support agencies and brands and, and clients who are looking for a tool um, in the influencer marketing space. We, we've found as this business matures and more money flows into it from an ad perspective, a lot of agencies and brands are wanting a tool they can use in-house to compare influencer marketing to their other investment channels, to build up some in-house expertise. So we're seeing this trend of the managed service uh, starting to wane a bit because really? um, you know people are starting to understand this space. There's Look, there's still a need for it, I think, in particular on the creative side. I think there's some um, influencer marketing agencies that do a really great job of um, ideas and creative and how to execute. But at the, at the nuts and bolts level, if you're doing quite a bit of business in influencer marketing, I do think you, there's, a, there's a trend of bringing the in-house to have a tool that can broker a lot of this for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is there a danger, though, that there is almost just too much information and uh, you know, some individuals need support and education about you know, how best to dissect it, use it uh, in the right manner? Um, because, as I say, there's, there's sometimes just too much, isn't there? Well, I think tools like Tagger provide information in a positive way of are there are the followers against a particular influencer? Do they look potentially fraudulent? Is the audience, you know, when we find clients are looking for influencer for two things. One, their audience, right? Who's who's mm -hmm. the audience? Is that relevant to my product or service? And then the actual influencer, do I like their DNA? Do I like how they present themselves? Are they on brand for me? Are they you know what I would want. So tools like Tagger give you the ability to look at those two lenses and determine is this somebody I'd want to hire? You can you can look if they worked with other brands that would be competitive to me previously, have they done anything off color at all? Like there is quite a bit of information. What I'm trying to say is that's a positive thing because yeah. you can kind of really legitimize what you're trying to do. Yeah, yeah, no for sure. I mean, uh, particularly this podcast is is looking at the uh, the American footprint, if you will. Um, what what trends are you picking up in in America in influencer marketing, in particular? 
You know, I talked a little bit about it earlier. I do think this platform SaaS is a macro trend. You know, we're seeing a lot of big um, agencies and brands wanting to bring this in-house. I I also think the trend of aggregating influencers, oftentimes one of the metrics everybody pays attention to um, is engagement, right? Mm -hmm. What kind of um, likes, comments, or shares Aggregating usually in engagement for uh, smaller influencers, or um, you know, if you're if you're looking for niche influencers for different things, there's some power in aggregating all of the, them together to get a really strong engagement. So, you know, looking for when I look at this ecosystem of influencers broadly, it's like the old broadcast TV. I mean, there's there's so much in there. You can find somebody who's a crafter or somebody. You know, you get really niche. Mm. And, and aggregating that to come up with a big number is really powerful, right? So mm-hmm. if you're looking for 20 million views of something, you could you could hire 300 influencers with a tool like Tagger and do that fairly simplistically um, and still deliver a great result, right, mm-hmm. on your ROI. So I think, you know, the trends are, there. there's definitely the top of the funnel um, talent management side for the, the super influencers, right? That's a little bit of a different strategy, but if, Ultimately, I think influencer marketing for most of our clients is paid media. Yeah. And I've been around long enough to be in the broadcast side and cable um, and then digital when that hit the hit big time and then mobile and music streaming and influencer marketing feels like another rev of all of those to me. It's just happening a lot faster, Mm. but it's also the most complex relative to all of those as well. So I think we're in the you know, early stages of a, of, a, of a long life of this, it will start to, as it already is, mature. But it is, it's paid media at its core. Mm, no, I agree. I agree. And, and what particular sectors do you think are, are working well in influencer marketing? What industries? I mean, traditionally, fashion and beauty has been clearly one of the biggest that's out there. But, but what others do you think have, have lended themselves well? Yeah, I think on that fashion beauty, we're seeing success with what I would call these challenger brands. So smaller brands that are up and coming, either that are based in, um, you know, more natural or, you know, against against some of the larger scale ones. So if you're a challenger brand in that space and you have limited budgets, oftentimes we see the bulk of the budget being spent in influence marketing because that's where your audience is. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and it kind of suits as well. You know, packaged goods is coming on strong i think that that's always been uh an interesting space um cpg as a category i i think one of the spaces that's been underserved categories rather that's been underserved is autos you know we we do some work in autos but when you think about um that high-end auto who can and dip into uh photography or other enthusiasts for autos or some really elegant executions I, i do think that's a it's a massive category, but I feel like they've been slightly underserved in the space. So I think that's one that has potential. Mm. And what about the sort of the beta, the B two B space? There, there's audiences for virtually anything now. When you think mm. about that, mm. uh, the digital sphere, and that certainly applies to B two B and opportunities for brands and less on the consumer side, more B two B. Because uh, look, everybody's in the space in some capacity. I think it's early days on how to best leverage that mm. um, on the B2B side because it's a, you're right. It's a little bit of a different sensibility where I was talking earlier about engagement being an interesting metric from a consumer perspective. That might not be the metric you look at for B2B, right? Mm. Because you're, you're, you're not going to organically get a lot of 
engagement, I would think, but maybe there's a few other metrics that are more important. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's such a big ecosystem and it just continues to grow. You know, bringing somebody in with social media expertise just broadly, it, it's amazing how easy it is now to execute an influencer marketing campaign if you have some working knowledge of the space, right? And there's lots of people who are really adept at all of the social channels and know how that world works. And, you know, when you put them in front of a tool like Tagger, they can scale a tremendous amount of business. So my point is the expertise is now becoming very prevalent. It used to be nobody knew how to crack this egg in this space a couple of years ago. But flash forward to where we are today, I feel like there's a lot of people who have have a strong working knowledge of this. So if I'm a brand or an agency, you know, I could hire somebody who has social media expertise, give them the right tool, something like a tagger, and they'll be able to really get quite a bit of business done. And to your point, they could lead with influencer from a creative perspective and execution on the ROI instead of initially it's an afterthought. Mm-hmm. No, indeed, indeed. Um, um, on what campaigns have you seen that have been really well executed in influencer marketing? Um, what have I seen? There's a there's a company here in Los Angeles called Stun Creative, um, and they've done some interesting work. And I I could certainly follow it up with you with um, Beyond Meat. Um, they've done some interesting work uh, in general. Stun Creative. They've got some um, some great uh, digital talent over there who are driving that. Um, there's a woman over there, Renee Sams, who I'd spent some time with at other companies who's been in this space for a long time, and she she's doing some really innovative things. So, yeah, I, I think what I'm picking up is some of the smaller companies for a while. I mean, we have a brand over here called Not on the High Street. It's a great example of, of an organization that's flourished, and it's given a lot of smaller businesses an opportunity to aggregate their message uh, and I'm I'm thinking more and more of this plays itself quite well in influencer marketing. Um, so I was interested to see if that played out in the States uh, in the same way. You know what? It does. I, I don't think we're there yet, but I, I see this space evolving to some point. What you just touched on is whether you call it programmatic or, or a local business. So, for instance, there could be, uh, you know, we're based in Santa Monica, which is an area in Los Angeles. So there could be a local yoga studio here. They want to spend a modest amount of money to find local people who will talk about their studio. They could go on to a light gauge version of Tagger and and do a natural language search. I'm trying to find uh, whatever it is that is. And then I'm teed up a couple of influencers. I could say, yes, those sound great to me. Here's what I recommend they do. It would post it out for me like a paid media. And I could swipe a credit card and spend 5,000 US dollars or 5,000 pounds on a campaign and I'm done. It's like a 12-step process, right? So whether you call that programmatic or it's system-dependent, you know, I, I see this space very much getting there for that long-tail business, mm. for these smaller smaller retails or local businesses. And that's really powerful execution. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, you know, the, sure. the space will get there. I think, you know, it's, it's, moving, it's moving quickly. But I do think there's an opportunity to really um, activate at that level. Yeah, yeah, and and do you is the uh, sort of research very much the growth is coming from micro influencers that have a high level of engagement f- with their followers, the same in America as it's appearing to be here in uh, in the UK. 
So you no- know, it could be. There, there, yeah, there's been a whole thing on the macro or the micro. And then I, I know the New York Times had done a piece. I think it was last year on nano influencer. <laughs> it kind of made me laugh. Even smaller, yeah. But, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's just on strategies. You know, we always talk to clients about using a tool like Tagger, you're able to really craft strategies of what you're trying to do. You get a lens and then you try the different things. It depends on what you're trying to do. I'm not sure, you know, it's all there. And, and I was talking earlier about aggregating some of these mid tier influencers to get a really great result on engagement. If that's what you're trying to drive, it might be if you're trying to just do brand awareness, then there is a top of the funnel play, right? Where you have, you have a significant budget and you really want to hire some high profile that's a different strategy. The, the the really niche or micro influencers, as we were talking about, that's if, you know, there's something niche, like I'm looking for um, pregnant moms that are uh, sports enthusiasts and fashion forward and nutrition. You know, you start to filter into these audiences and then you're you're probably going to find a better result at that micro level. Mm. Uh, more of a more of a local level. And and who who are you finding are the big players, the big the big names that are really getting to grips with it with the influence marketing in the in the states? Estee Lauder is doing quite a bit, um, which is not surprising given their uh, roster of companies and their mm. their footprint in the the beauty fashion world. So we're we're seeing companies like that. I think it was recently reported, and one of the trades that there was a large percentage of their budget that was going to influence yeah, our market. Indeed, uh, indeed. Which is not a surprise. So, so people like that, you know, you're seeing a lot of the packaged goods step up. So, so finally then, um, love to get a take on what you think the future looks like for, for influencer marketing. Um, well, obviously, I think it's very bright. <laughs> what's happening. On, you know, some of the ad spend numbers are significant. They say it could be as much as twelve billion dollars shifting into the space, yeah. you know, next year. So the, the money's the money's flying. I, you know, I'm looking for it. It's already it's already become much more sophisticated in what's on offer and what you can um, the lens you can look into. You know, I I think the longer tail business is a big opportunity, as I talked about in terms of local businesses and. You know, I, the money shifting into this, the biggest opportunity I feel like is on the research attribution side. When you look at influencer marketing and you compare this to other investment channels, if yes, I'm a indeed. Yeah. marketing officer, you know, cracking that nut from a third party. So I think to find a research uh, company who really is up for tackling this would would really serve them well because they're looking, everybody's looking for that currency, that common currency that, mm. to trade as as there's TV ratings and all that digital measurement, et cetera, there, there are a number of metrics that make most people feel comfortable currently. But I do think nailing that, then you'll see that tsunami of money really start to flow into the space. And, um, you know, like anything, the bad citizens on the creative side or or influencers are going to just not last long. So Mm -hmm. that authenticity will continue to drive the business forward. But it's just a, it's a really fascinating space because it's that combination of tech and creative and it's just where, you know, the, the money always flows where the audiences are and the audiences are here in droves. So, mm-hmm. no, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Dave, it's been a pleasure. Um, thank yeah, you very thank much, you so much for uh, taking the time out uh, to have a chat with us today. Absolutely. Take care. Yeah. Great. All right. All the best. Influence, the global podcast that shines a spotlight on the influencer marketing industry. One of the challenges in the industry is ensuring we build trust and authenticity. One person who has a strong view about verification and ensuring we keep standards high 
is co-founder of influencer platform Silo, Brett Garfinkel. We are the only provider of third-party verification. That means influencer fraud detection uh, and measurement for the influencer marketing space. So we are an independent, unbiased source bringing trust and transparency in a space that's currently without. The first thing is you have to trace how, how this all started. Um, you have to understand that when we say we're bringing back trust and transparency, people say, what do you mean about back? When the influencer, the blogger community started and then it became the influencer marketing uh, on YouTube, um, most of those influencers, it was organic. The audience that they, that they, they grew was authentic because there was no uh, you know, way to gain the system that, to make more money. They, they weren't being paid early on for this. So it, it was legitimate in that sense. Hmm. But as it moved to other platforms and people started to realize it wasn't so you had to create a, a video series, which is a lot more effort, but you could just take pictures and, and of you traveling or working out or, uh, or cooking food, whatever it may be. Yeah. And um, what people started to understand was that they were getting paid based on uh, data points like followers or likes. And then there were groups that came about and said, well, I could help you grow your followers and likes. And in actuality, it wasn't an organic, authentic audience. And so a lot of people came into the space saying, well, I could be an influencer then. And it just grew and grew and people growing these followers and getting paid based off those data points. And what's happening here in America is what happens in anything in life. When you start spending more money on something, you look a little more closely at what you're paying for. You buy a lollipop, no one really checks for verification. <laughs> but when you're buying a, a car or something, you start looking for, well, what am I actually paying for? Am I getting the value uh, that, that I, that's expected? Yeah. And uh, when they looked closely, they found issues of what people call fraud. We don't like to use that word as much. Uh, it seems like more of a legal term in a sense. But yes, people who were acquiring inorganic uh, followers and engagements, and they were in essence gaming the system. Um, so, it, you know, in our advertising community, we, we call it invalid traffic. This is now at a point of what we call sophisticated invalid traffic. Mm. They've understood numerous, numerous ways of growing audience base that really isn't true following, like truly engaging, authentic. And so right now the industry is at a standstill. It's at a tipping point where brands are now talking about it. They're asking about it. A study came out that $1.3 billion is being wasted on influencer marketing so the question is are we done speaking about it and now ready to take action and implement change and best practices and standards mm, is this industry absolutely. ready to become legitimate and that's where we're at no I, and i think it's it's very interesting how it's it's grown so rapidly in fact um there's something like around 750 influencer platforms i think uh, around the world with with a, a huge number growing uh, sort of year by year and i think what we we're, we're all trying to do aren't we is give give brands trust and, and reassurance that actually this is a, a valued advertising medium and you and i know yes. that it, you and i know that it is 
but it's actually about cutting through and 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 providing uh, this sort of uh, re- reassurance. Yeah, I, I, w- I would say to everyone listening, this is not a standard media buying, media selling uh, ecosystem. For one, you you don't have an ad unit on the other end of the media buyer. You have a person. Mm. So just from that alone there are extra steps that need to take place because now that means we have uh, privacy laws, uh, general data protection rights that come into play. You also have talent managers like CAA, UTA, uh, Endeavor, who are now in this ecosystem. That's never the case if you're buying a television ad or a placement in a magazine. You don't have to deal with a talent manager there, but they, they are prevalent here. And as you mentioned, we have 740 and counting. The guess is it's going to hit about a thousand of these influencer marketing platforms where you could go on and they call themselves end to end solutions. Some are exchanges, if you will. But, and, and there's nothing against them because there is no third party currently other than ourselves, but that hasn't, hasn't been mandated yet. So they are trying to provide the measurement and data as well. So they're they're taking on what becomes self-reporting. You Um, can't go anywhere if everyone has their own different analytics. It's confusing. We need to simplify first and foremost. Um, The first thing you have to ask yourself is how is this data being collected? Are they scraping the data? That's a violation of the terms of service of, say, Instagram, Facebook and uh, violating against privacy acts. They're liable for lawsuits. I'm amazed that there hasn't been more class action lawsuits of people representing creators whose content is being taken and, and sold uh, uh, you know, uh, to brands and even to those brands who are, who are working with companies that are doing this. But it, it was a practice that was established when it was almost a gray area so people kind of like turned the other way, but we can't do that anymore. Outside of that, The first step that has to take place is very simple. We need to start weeding out the bad actors from Mm, the good actors. For sure. Okay. So we need, um, similar to what a good housekeeping seal of approval. Think of any legitimate industry. Uh, Finance, people who are brokers, uh, broker-dealers license. They're required to have. Take a Series 7 here in the States. Uh, Driving, you have your kids. You have someone who's going to drive your children. One person has a driver's license. The other person does not. Who are you going to trust more? Mm. Um, anything in life. There are. We need to create that form of best practice and regulation where we immediately have to have people who have that good housekeeping seal of approval first and foremost. That's number one. And we are coming out next week with Silo Certified. The press release is going out. It's something we've been building for about a year and a half, working with some of the largest talent management companies and brands and ad agencies uh, who have vetted us thoroughly for this. Uh, but it is that step. It is. It should be necessary and mandated, but that's that's an example of that. Now, once we've gone past that, going to answer your question, the data. You want to first collect the most amount of data, but there's going to be specific data points that matter the most. Uh, out with followers, out with engagement rate. That's prehistoric. It's too much, too many holes. It's like Swiss cheese. We're going to start looking at things from impressions and reach, which you only can see if a creator is authenticated in and signed up as a business account, Mm -hmm. okay? And we're going to see things like audience engagement rate. This is more accurate than engagement rate. And these numbers, we're going to have benchmarks. Benchmarks for the creators first, their averages and how they do on 
uh, in comparison. And then it's going to be industry benchmarks will be established. Okay, all this will tighten up the space. It's almost like we're creating a professional league. Mm. Okay, think mm. of uh, in your area like Premier Soccer League. Okay, the not everyone can make it there. There's others who are on the peripheral. But this is where the most amount of business takes place. It's where the highest level of transparency, the best practices exist. And with that, confidence comes. And with confidence comes accountability. And with that comes better efficiency and more money. So everyone in the space who, who makes it in this division, if you will, they're going to better off. The creators will, the vendors will, who are there, uh, who are doing things right. And the brands will put more money into it. Mm, but mm. the only way we get that is to first simplify. Verification. Everyone needs to shake their hands and say, look, if it's not my company and someone else wants to do it, it's it's not that easy. Mm. But I say that vet a third party, an independent, not a vendor, a third party, and then choose who that's going to be for the industry. Mm. It could be more than one possibly, but the ones who are doing it the right way. And then use them for measurement. You not you can't have everyone using different forms and overcomplicating the system. We need to first choose it the way television chose Nielsen, Comscore, the likes of Moat, Double Verify. This is nothing new. It it works. It works when done correctly. Indeed. The problem is right now, like any industry that starts out, um, when it's open, when it's the Wild West, and anything can happen. That means you're bringing in good, but you're bringing in a lot of bad too. And when we see the growth of something, now it, it's the responsibility of the people who fund the space. That's the money. And they have to come in and they have to make demands. They do. They have mm. to say, this is my investor's money. This mm. is my client's money. This is my brand's money. And I expect the following, verification mm. and accurate third-party measurement. The, the reality is this. Why, why, did, why has it taken it so long? Well, we'll think about this. When it first started, you know, you had YouTube and you had it was more brand integration. So you had branded content divisions at all the ad agencies in the brands who were used to doing integrated uh, content since 2004, 2005. They were doing this on sites like My Damn Channel, Mania TV, um, uh, Ripe TV uh, and, and, and other platforms. And so those teams had funds and they were starting to integrate into YouTube creators. And then when they moved to Instagram, the lot of the PR firms used it as earned media. Hey, here's my product for free. Talk about it. So no one really was keeping tabs of, of whether this was being done in the right way or not. They were just giving away product and they saw it as earned media, paid media. But now the budgets have grown and to a point where it should be paid media, it should be looked upon that way. The way you look when you pay for an ad in a magazine or on a on a, a network television. You know, if you're paying someone for that inventory, you have a process. You demand verification, brand safety, and accurate measurement from an independent, unbiased source. So I think what's happening is people are obviously focusing on the bad. But when you saw like a show on Netflix, like the Fire Festival, mm. you saw the good and the bad. You saw that it moved a product promotion faster than any other form of media. Clearly, it blew it out of the water. But at the same time, there was, there was certain misleading, certain regulation that needs to take place. So we need to clear it up. Let the best, the ones who truly have influence, I don't care if they have 20,000 followers, it doesn't matter. 
people who actually have organic, authentic audience following. Let them uh, clear the way from those who are not doing it the right way and create this environment and this ecosystem where the ones who truly have influence on different subject matters exist and everything is doing being done the proper way. Mm, okay, yep. It's just taking a little bit longer. But right now, look, for all those people who work with brands, it's their responsibility now. The creators will not do it. Influence, the global podcast that shines a spotlight on the influencer marketing industry. And that's it for this American-themed episode of Influence. I hope you've enjoyed it. And as ever, we would welcome your feedback. Don't forget to keep an eye on the BCMA website for all the latest influencer marketing news. And until next time, from me, Gordon Glenister, thanks for listening and goodbye.